Marco. Polo. Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh, heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. So I know that I'm given to polemics, right? I know this about my personality. All the time people tell me that I need to calm down. And mostly for this show, I hold it back and try to be as calm, and po- as, as, calm as possible. Um, and I, I promise not to, not to be polemical. But there was something that you read the other day that I thought was hilarious. Could you, uh, this is a Facebook post, could you read the contents of that? Really? You want all of the content? Uh, yeah, we got to do the whole thing. Well, it's kind of long, but sure. Let's start out. Oh, is it, is it long? It's kind of long. Can I, can I, can I see it out? No. Okay. It says, <laughs> the first part says, wake up America. Wake up America. Exclamation point. Tell me when you want me to stop, okay? Okay. The shoe bomber was a Muslim. The beltway snipers were Muslims. The Fort Hood shooter was a Muslim. The underwear bomber was a Muslim. The USS Cole bombers were Muslims. The Madrid train bombers were Muslims. The Bali nightclub bombers were Muslims. The London subway bombers were Muslims. (laughs) The Moscow theater attackers were Muslims. The Boston Marathon attackers were Muslims. The Boston Marathon bombers were Muslims. Pan Am flight number 93 bombers were Muslims. The Air France Entebbe hijackers were Muslims. The Iranian embassy takeover was by Muslims. The Beirut... U.S. Embassy bombers were Muslims. Libyan U.S. Embassy attack was by Muslims. The Buenos Aires suicide bombers were Muslims. And the Israeli Olympic team attackers were Muslims. The Kenyan U.S. Embassy bombers were Muslims. The Saudi Cobar Towers bombers were Muslims. The Beirut Marine Barracks bombers were Muslims. The Beslan Russian school attackers were Muslims. And the First World Trade Center bombers were Muslims. So it seems to me. <laughs> wow, if you've the, lasted throughout that whole thing, congratulations. It seems to, to the listeners. Go ahead. It seems to me on the face of it. Um, <laughs> that, um here's someone in the world who wants us to understand um that Muslims are bad, Muslims are terrorists. You think so? Uh, that that, that, that what they want you to understand. That, that's what I was getting from that. And um, and I'll listen to any argument. You know, it's the point of being heterodox. I'll listen to any argument, but you have to make an <laughs> you have to make an argument. What I'm not gonna do here's what I'm not gonna do. Uh, I'm not going to I, I'm not gonna listen to like these examples that include okay, let's say the shoe bomber and the the Beltway sniper. Really, we're talking about John Muhammad and his little friend. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. Um, we probably are going to need to put some of this in the show notes. So here, I remember that. Here, here, you know, the Bellway Cyber was a big thing. We all remember yeah. that, right? But if you are thinking, I don't, I, I don't know how to, all I can say is, anyway, l- let's move on. Um, the Bellway Sniper, it's a joke to include that here, but whatever, right? Um, I don't I, think they were joking. 
at, at some point, at some point, uh, by the time you get to Pan Am Flight 93, I'm like, what are you doing? It's like, if, if your intention is to just dig through the crates, do, do you know this term, dig through the crates? Yeah, I mean, sure. It's like a, it's like a DJ term, right? Oh, I, I just, I mean, I, it makes sense to me if oh, I'm digging enough. through the crates. If I'm going through my basement and digging through the crates, I'm just looking for stuff. Gotcha. I mean, when DJs start digging through the crates, it's like, oh. let me find this record. It, it, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. Um, but if you're going to just start digging through everything, in, you know, for me, Pan Am, like, 93 happened so long ago. You have to look at the Libyan government's, you know, role in it. I don't want to get too, I don't want to get bogged down in facts. Here's all I'm saying. Is by the time you have a list that is so incoherent, that is so historically all, the, all over the place, if the thing that you want to do is to look throughout all of history to find examples that support your argument, you have no longer made an argument. Right? You, you're just talking smack and this is literally i could do this for any group i mean i whatever i know history well enough that if i wanted to say all the things that men did wrong all the thing that women's women did wrong all the thing that white people did wrong i could do the same thing for native americans right talk about the aztecs and you know i I, you could do this for any group and so the idea of looking throughout an expansive you know swath of history and say here are all the things that my predetermined enemy have done um, it's ridiculous, right? <laughs> it's hilarious to me. And this is why, um, so I, I'm fully aware that in any given moment, I'm walking around with a longer, probably a longer scope of history uh, as a political science, you know, major. Uh, I probably have a longer scope of political history than does the average anything. This is the average person, right? Um, but what we're not going to do, what we're not going to allow in any meaningful kind of way, is to just cherry pick these these events throughout history that support your ridiculous argument, so that you can make some point to the other people uh, who are listening to your ridiculousness and say, "Oh, here here's this thing." Um, I just one, I can't abide, and <laughs> two, it, yeah, I've already said. Did I already say it's utterly ridiculous? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and so one of the things I like to say in this show is that history is important, right? It's it's one history is important. Two, we live in a historical context, and both of these things they interact with each other. So, Angie, I think today I'd like to talk a little bit about history. Okay. You know, I I am hearing you that um, history is important and. The historical context is important and how those two interact. And I was thinking about examples from, um, as a therapist, how this plays out often on these personal levels. Um, so some somebody could experience something when they were eight um, and have the context of the story going from when they were a little kid. Um, a story perhaps that they've never really delved into as an adult. Sure. They've just believed it, not really understanding that they've believed it from an eight-year-old perspective. Right. I'll give you a, a small example. So say uh, somebody is um, believing that somehow their their father, let's say, has become um, aggravated and is no longer 
um, caring about them. And so as an eight-year-old, they devised these plans to get their kid, their father to uh, love them again. Right. Pay attention and... Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe the dad's distant. Maybe he comes home from work and he's tired and he's not engaging with the kid the way he used to. So this kid says, I know what I'll do. I'll bring him cookies and milk every every night for two weeks and right. see what happens. Or every <laughs> Who night. Who doesn't love cookies and milk? Right? Yeah. So the kid maybe as an eight-year-old is every night serving this up. Cookies and milk when his dad comes home from work and sits down. And at first there seems to be no change, but eventually the father starts to warm up again and the kid feels really loved again. And there's this deep connection that the kid had been mm, longing for. Right. So bringing this into an adult context, while well, maybe perhaps they're sitting in my office and we're having a family therapy session and the, the adult child will say something like, hey, you know, well, it's just like that time when I started to do the thing that you wanted me to do. Like, I figured out that you wanted cookies and milk every night and that's how it fixed our relationship. You started to love me again. And the dad is like blown away, has no concept of what right, this kid what is talking, talking about. Right. None. Um, and it's this revelation of, you know, what context was. He was the kid was eight. Um, in his kid brain, he's saying, you know, something's wrong with my dad. It must be about me. I'll right. fix it. Um, and then history, which this kid then grows up to believe that this was the defining right. point. This is really what changed things. And, you know, in the historical context, the kid is, you know, the adult child has never processed this in this particular way before. Right. When he hears the dad say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and they go back and visit this history. And it happened to be a time when his dad's business was doing poorly. And he was having just a hard time as, as a man, you know, coming right. home tired. And the adult child is just blown away. For the first time, he's revealed the story of some truth that he's held in this context of history and being eight that he's never delved into. Because why? He believed it was true. He didn't really right. think he had any ideas of why he would need to look at that again. And the whole thing proves to be false. Right. So even as an adult, he didn't ask any questions about, like, you know, is this true or not? It's just like there's this story that I inherited. Right. I assumed, you know, whatever would happen when I was a kid and just never re-examined it. Never re-examined it. Never thought he should re-examine it. You know, as an eight-year-old, it what he thought is it solved his dilemma. Sure. To visit it again, why? Doesn't make sense. Right. right. Until he's an adult, and then all of a sudden it does make sense. Even as an adult, you could see the light bulb go on like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, history and context. Right. Yeah, so there are things like this that we believe that we, you know, we never take apart. And, uh, you know, I mean, we talk about this a lot on the show, right? We're, we're these things that, that need to be more examined. But even in this uh, historical context, so uh, I guess I spent a, a good amount of time trying to get into other people's heads, mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to deconstruct the narratives that they have, or 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 ask myself, how can I reverse engineer? Like, what wh what would they need to believe, or what would they need to see or experience in order to to trigger uh, some kind of mechanism that would allow them to question? Um, the kind of context that they've inherited or the narrative or the history that, that, that they've inherited. And it's not that easy a thing because, you know, people end up there in, in different ways. Do you ever come up with these things? And, you know, so we've talked a, a, enough about Daniel Kahneman on the on this show. Um, I I certainly think about what he says about the, um, the kind of lazy, the lazy thinking. Daniel Kahneman is the author of the book called Thinking Fast Thinking and Slow. Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, 
Nobel laureate uh, who you know won the Nobel Prize in economics, even though he's a psychologist. Um, but you know, one of the things that they that he kind of posits is that um, you know, oftentimes when we're looking at um, like a question or a dilemma, uh, the first thing that pop ups in our, the first thing that pops up in our head, we'll just we'll just go with that. We won't question the truth of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't question the veracity of it. We'll say, oh, like this is my first thought. Let's run with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another mechanism that we could use that says, let me slow down a little bit and ask myself, is this is this true? Is this the actual answer? Mm-hmm. Let me think about it a little bit more to come up with some explanation that's more like well honed, more thought out. He calls these system one, system two. Right. Slow thinking and or fast thinking and slow thinking, mm-hmm. respectively. Um, but I think most of the time, if we have to choose between, uh, you know, having a, a thought that pops in our head, <laughs> then, you know, even, you know, I mean, most of us, right? That It's like, oh, this must be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then slowing down and asking yourself, well, is that the case? Mm-hmm. And then if it's not the case, what is the case? That's like, who's going to do that? It's so hard. And a lot of times because of the context we are running these stories that we, you know, we've talked about this again, right. that we believe are true, that we've never really had to understand or thought to understand them in a different way. Our context has determined how we think. Right. And one of those things that I think is invisible, and again, we talk about the, these kind of invisible things enough, is that, that I'd like people to understand is that we are in a context. We exist in a context. Uh, these are religious contexts, historical contexts, economic, you know, social cultural contexts. Um, <clears throat> but if you don't see your own context, mm-hmm. uh, then it's really hard to, to kind of weigh your thinking against some, some other type of thinking that is outside of that context. So I'm going to ask you a question. This may be a little unfair because you're going to have to do probably some speculation. So this, this post that I read about, about, the, the, Muslims. about the Muslims, what would in your imagination be a context for that? Um, so one historical context, and, and you know what? I, I laughed enough that it's. I'll put some stuff in the uh, in in the show notes mm-hmm. uh, just to address some of why I thought that it was, was so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, one of the contexts is um, you know if you're making this, so the Iranian Revolution is included there, right? Um, and in 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 any kind of real historical way. I think that it is it's unjustifiable to um to include what happened in Iran within a broader way that, you know, 2019 um you know, American Islamophobes or anybody else might include what they might consider Muslim. It's just like it's a different thing. So, and, you know, you had mentioned with your political science background, you're going to know a lot more right. than you said the average person, right, which right, is true. Right, right. You know, um, you you have a master's degree. I mean, this isn't, you know, perhaps, I mean, I think, you know, maybe this isn't as likely as it could be more common knowledge. But for this person in particular, I'm asking you, how could you imagine this context from where they're coming define something like or could... Uh, be the impetus for a post like that? No, I mean, so it's post 9-11, right? Um, and, I, you know, I, like it or not, it, I, I can I can dial into the fear that uh, Americans have about the, the part of the world that uh, that they don't know. 
uh, I was reading some some um, some notes earlier from like you know that I had written a, a while back, and it said something like, um, you know, fear of knowing is a mask for fear of the unknown. Um, and I, I think if we cannot know, uh, then we don't have to confront. Um, we don't have to confront the the kind of chaos that may or may not be on the other side of knowing. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's the fear of the unknown part. Um, and it's not like it's. It's not like I don't get it. I do. Post 9-11. So I'll tell you what. This is my own 9-11 story. My own 9-11 story. And it's completely... The only reason I think it's worth telling is because it's so divergent um, from so many Americans. Um, September 11th, 2001. I decided to go to um, my old job. It It was a coffee shop. And in my head that day, uh, what I really wanted was um, like a hazelnut latte, right? That's what I wanted, over ice. It's September, it's hot enough, and I walked down to my old job, and they're closed, and there, there was a sign on the door uh, that said, like, you know, due to whatever happened in New York, um, we're closed for the day. And at the moment, I was thinking, like, that's, that's utterly ridiculous. New York is so far away. Nobody's going to attack your coffee shop. At this point, you didn't know. Or did you know? I Yeah, I knew. Oh, you knew. Yeah, was, I knew. Oh, okay. You but it was in New York. It was like, how far away is that? Mm. Um, and I didn't have a sense of America was under attack. That didn't occur to me at all. It was like, whoa, they attacked New York and the Pentagon and some, there's a plane in Pennsylvania. Um, but then, like, days go by. <laughs> days go by and they're still talking about it on the news. I'm like... Wow, really? Is this newsworthy? Three, four days later? Um, And um, so here's what's really true. A good amount of time goes by and um, it's still on the news. And I can't make sense of it. Um, And I think that either something is wrong with me or something is wrong with America. Because I have no idea why this is still newsworthy uh, four or five days later. So I'm thinking probably listeners, some listeners are probably super perplexed about what you're saying now. Tell me why. I, I was perplexed. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think, you know, I think some people are saying, how could you not know? It's like this huge crisis. And yeah. Tell me I about mean, this. But was it really? Right. I mean, if you live in Minnesota, was it really that big of a crisis? But actually for me, that that's that's. Eventually, it's these people in Minnesota that I came to understand. And I, I'll tell you how I got there. Okay. Uh, the, the first thing that happens for me is it's so discordant. It's so dissonant that I have to seek out a like-minded community. Now, right. there used to be a black coffee shop in Philadelphia called um, Crimson Moon. And it was like a kind of hub. It was like a cultural hub for Philadelphia blacks. Uh, I go to Crimson Moon. And really, I just need to check in with like intellectual, with other intellectual blacks. Like, is it me? Was white America tripping right now over the September 11th thing? And I found a mix of responses. Some people were like, "Oh, actually, this is a big thing," and other people were like, "Yeah, I don't understand it either." Um, and, and so I didn't really come away satisfied. I came away a little bit validated, but there were certainly people who saw something that I didn't see. Mm-hmm. So even Crimson Moon didn't really give me. Uh, what I what I, I what I, what I wanted. Cut forward. I'm on to uh, I go camping in central Pennsylvania 
with some former Bucknell uh, classmates. Cut forward to how how forward? Mm, this is maybe 2002. Right? So a year later, um, I'm going to uh, Boulder Run, I think it was called. Some place in Pennsylvania. It was called something. There were some boulders there. It's called something. Uh, <laughs> and on the way, I saw um, all of these United States flags that were uh, out, like, hanging out on people's lawns and on their driveways and so on and so forth. But different from the, the, the kind of rise of U.S. flag display that I saw in the cities, these were flags that were well-worn. They had been there for years. And I had an epiphany. I was like, okay, you live in Scott Run, Pennsylvania, or you live in, Boulder you know. Run or something. Yeah, but Scott Run is a town. Oh, okay. Uh, but you live in Scott Run, Pennsylvania, or you live in Montana, or whatever whatever place in, you know, in Central PA that you live. And this flag has been there for years. And the thing that has happened that is upsetting in your day-to-day life is nothing. Right? There is no controversy. There is no, uh, there's no trauma at that scale. Uh, mostly people feel safe. They know their neighbors. They know their environment. Not that much happens. At most, someone doesn't return someone else's uh, lawnmower, right? And then it, it occurred to me, I said, oh, I, I think I understand the context of September 11th now. And for me, so my the, the trauma that up interrupted my sense of safety uh, happened way before September 11th. Yeah, we, we right? talked about that. In fact, you were mentioning on the very first podcast with your story, I think you were around... Eight or nine when you saw something. No, bad? this would this wouldn't be it. In fact, oh. uh, it was, it was, um, you know, I, I've lost a few family members to um, to gun violence. This particular one, uh, my cousin Joey, um, you know, I hadn't seen him in a bit, and he had just come to visit um, about. Six days before he was shot. And I hadn't seen him in a while. He showed up with his cousin. Um, and they came over and we, we had a good time. We busted up. We laughed. Uh, and he, he wanted to tell me some good news. He had just taken Shahada. That is, he had, um, he had just become Muslim. Which, um, for him, was an important thing. It meant that he had committed to uh, some kind of spiritual path. Um, and that he was uh, trying to clean up his life. Right. And his life wasn't it wasn't bad. It was just like he was like making the decision to become um, just like a better person. He had just got a promotion. He was working. I don't know if you remember that, that uh, that chain Sizzler. Mm-hmm. I remember Sizzler. Uh, he had just gotten a promotion. He was manager at Sizzler now. Uh, he got in custody of his daughter and uh, he was in a new like phase of his life. And he was proud, right? He was like, yo, I'm manager now. I just took Shahada. I got custom of my daughter. Um, like, look at the new me. And we had a good time that night. We busted up. And, you know, I remember it just because it was so... Um, and then six days later, I remember, you know, I was out late enough. And then uh, as I was coming in, it was probably like 1.30 in the morning. Uh, my mother called from her bedroom. She said, oh, you know, Joey got shot. And uh, what I mean, whatever. It's the hood. People get shot all the time. Um, so I didn't think anything of it. I just continue kind of um, processing toward my 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 bedroom door. Um, and then she said, you know, he he was pronounced dead at 
at one, like one eighteen or one something. Um, and I guess for, you know, for all the times that I heard people get shot, uh, my expectation was that like whatever you you just you get through it. But I didn't, um, I didn't really anticipate that she was going to say that other part. Um, and that was devastating to me. I mean, losing a cousin to handgun violence is devastating in and of itself. But it also kind of destroyed this myth that I have, you know. I, I was the, you know, I was the nerdy one in the hood. And my mom had always had this, um, this, this thing that she would tell me and I would live by is, if you don't mess with trouble, trouble won't mess with you. And that was a safety blanket for me. It felt safe to think that as long as I did the right thing, um, that I, I could live a life and, and not be bothered. And then here was Joey who was doing the right thing. Um, and he was, uh, he was sitting outside of the house of his daughter's mother in his car. And... Um, a guy walked up to him and shot him in the back of his head. And um, in Joey's death also did die my fantasy that um, that if you don't do anything, that if you don't mess with trouble, trouble won't mess with you. It's the history and context thing again. Right. So I guess, you know, fast forward to... Montana or to central Pennsylvania. Um, now I understand what it meant, what it meant for the majority. So my sense of safety had already been ripped away, which is why I don't think September 11th had been registered. In the, it didn't register in the same way. Mm-hmm. But once I, I came to understand that for so many Americans, this was their safety blanket. Nothing ever happens here in the United mm-hmm. States. Once I came to understand that their safety blanket had been ripped away, as mine had been mm-hmm. previously, then I got it. Then it clicked. Then it made sense. Yeah. What an what a incredibly powerful story. But I think you made a couple points there. You know, one is, you know, kind of what I was describing with this eight-year-old kid. You had gone right. through this idea for whatever the better part of your life until that idea had to be deconstructed or it was deconstructed by an event no longer made sense to you so right. you had to ask yourself was that true and really what is true you know the history and the right. context took it all right. apart and then you know the other point being that you were able to see later that you know if someone is not faced with you know big adversity or lots of things that are personally um, affecting their safety, their personal safety, they could be killed at any moment, then when something does happen, it, it feels um, particularly unsafe. You had already felt unsafe for a right. long time. Yeah, my context was so, was so different in that regard. So I think about this, this Facebook poster, and some part of me gets it. Um, I, get, I get the fear... I get the the sense of security that has been uh, ripped away um, and what it means to respond based on really this inherited information that you've never examined. Um, 
in this way that that makes you feel i guess safer but you know ultimately i think that we can't let safeness be our our driver and this is not to say that safety is not uh, an important aspect uh, of human life but this idea of safeness right i just want to feel this way all the time we can't let that be our driver Mm -hmm. in terms of our experiences in terms of how we experience the world um i think that we can't let fears be our driver um either because there's all that we have to give up if we are going to just live in fear there's this all of this other type of human experience um that we have to relinquish if we're going to let fear be our primary driver there's all this that we have to give up if we're going to try not to live in fear if we're going to try just i think just to to yes not live in fear but also to experience the, the kind of spectrum of both, you know, good and bad that the human experience offers mm-hmm. us. Uh, we can't let our fear, we can't let fear be our driver if that's what we want. That's right. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I ask this a lot. The question is, like, what kind of life do you want to live? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, there's something too. if you want the beauty, if you want the majesty, if you want the awe, then uh, you those you know this idea of safeness and fear they they can't they can't be the drivers yeah i agree and it comes back to that fundamental fundamental thinking again is i would say i think oftentimes people don't know it's the fear that is driving them um and to be conscious of really what is your driver is it you're looking for your safety around every tree, every house, every stone, this is where you're going, you just need safety. Um, but you'd have to examine examine that about yourself, are you? And, and I think that's what we were talking about when we first started off, what it means to examine, uh, you know, one, what it means to examine the things that we've inherited, but also, you know, examine your own context, see yourself within a context. And, and that's not necessarily the easiest thing. Um, but we are always within a context. And here's, here's why that matters. You can walk outside the door and take in what you see, and the amount of information that is visually available to you is is not necessarily sufficient for you to understand everything that you need to do in a given place, right? Um, and, and just uh, this complex thing of what language we need to speak, how we interact with people, what the norms are, all these things are kind of influenced by our, our cultural context, Um but then there are these other things that I think are, are part of the broader historical context that sometimes they confound us, sometimes they make us angry. Uh, and if we don't, like, here's an example. If we think about how cities, generally how cities came to be, uh, in nearly every civilization, you have people who are near some body of water, either a coast or a river, and trade is easier, water is easier, you know, because people need water, water is easier, and cities spring up. But if you live in a suburb, how did suburbs come to be? What might feel like the most natural thing in the world, I grew up in a suburb, my kids live in a suburb, but like in most of the world, that's just not the case. In the United States, there's a particular historical context that gives rise to the suburbs, which changed how we drive cars, it changes how we commute, it changes how we buy groceries, it also changes how we interact. All of that has a historical context and it may or may not seem important, but like how we relate to the rest of the world is actually totally dictated mm. by the environment in which we live and the context in, in which we live. So even by that description, people maybe for a few generations that have been raised in the suburbs compared to 
people for a few generations that have been raised in the city, they're going to be coming from very different places, per- perhaps, right? For sure, they're going to be coming from, from different places. But, I, I, you know, but I just think... even in, in the realm of context, how... No, no doubt. Yeah. Um, and the same is true of rural areas. But rural areas, we can... That's like one of the hardest words for me to I say. I know, me too. I always find <laughs> it hard to say. Rural areas are... It always sounds like you're kind of like... Rural, right. Yeah. It's just like a mouthful of marbles. Um, <laughs> but, you know, people who live near farmland, people who live in areas that are rural... Rural. Um, rural. They, uh... Th- there's, there's kind of like this historicity to that, right? There's this kind of historical element to how that came to be. In order to understand the American suburb, you actually need to know the facts, how this project, it's a project, right? Mm-hmm. How it came to be. Uh, and it might seem uh, as natural as the air. It might seem like uh, this has always been this this way, but it hasn't been. Uh, and I think the reason that we need to, so now we have like this, even in our voting patterns, what we saw, and we see this in lots of elections, is that suburbs tend to go, you know, a couple different ways, but cities tend to go um, almost predictably the same way over and over again. Is there something that is happening in the, you know, I mean, it's not like city people have different brains, but their experiences are different, mm-hmm. their contexts are different, and it's shaping their behaviors and their decisions in different types of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also true for people who live in rural areas. Um, but how do we make sense of the suburb, which is relatively new? I mean, you know, 100 years ago, wouldn't have this. Um, and so, um, so for me, the historical context is, um, it's an important one. It is an important one. You know, you could keep pulling back the layers of what it means, um, historically, like how did the suburbs get here? What's happened, um, for their, them to even be formed. Um, I think that's important, but it's also important to know Whomever ha- who, whoever has been there for a long time, they are, um, if they aren't examining their beliefs within the context of the suburb, they're missing something. That's true. I mean, yeah, and that, that's certainly true for, I mean, I guess ultimately, here, here's what I want. Uh, most of us are living our lives. And I think I mostly, <laughs> this is not going to change that much. Uh, what I want people to be doing is live, I want them to live their lives. Um, but instead of living your life in this kind of um, state of obliviousness or state of like, uh, I just inherited this context. At the bare minimum, I want people to understand that they are actually living in a given context. And, and, and if you want to understand some of the forces that shape your own life, you might ask questions about how did this context come to be? Yeah. And for me, I, I guess that's where the historic that's where the history part comes in. It's like saying, how did this context that I find myself in, how did this come to be? So one of my favorite ones is uh, there are two really kind of threads that um, really I find interesting threads that um, have us show up where we where we are today. Um, if you'll indulge me a little bit, I'll go through the major points of this history as fast as I possibly can. Right? Oh, okay. I might have to move you along, and that's my job. That, that is your job. Uh, Marco Polo decides to go to the East. And what he brings back after all the years there, he brings back spices, he brings back noodles, uh, he brings back silk, and probably most importantly, he brings back a knowledge of uh, what would eventually become the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. 
the Venetians and the Italian uh, city-states, they really are able to uh, squeeze a lot of wealth, a lot of trade, and ultimately a lot of power out of, um, out of the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other things happen that I'll spare you the details, but what happens in Europe is that um, other countries have to make sense of their power and their wealth in relationship to Venice. Uh, Spain is one of these places. Um, Portugal is another one. I guess 1488, uh, the Portuguese, you know, they, they stumble onto some probably really solid information that this idea of going around the Cape of Good Hope will, uh, which is the Cape right there at South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, going around the, the western uh, coast of Africa and around the Cape of Good Hope will allow them to access um, the spices, the wealth, the, 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 the silk of India, right? And so the Italian city-states and the Ottomans and none of those people have a stronghold. Now in the Spanish, Spain is right next to Portugal, right? The Spanish have, they have a decision to make. Um, right now, Italy controls everything in terms of trade. Uh, the Ottomans are kind of making things a little bit of a havoc, but Spain has to decide whether or not they're going to get smushed in between these two powerful forces. Mm-hmm. Portugal and then the rest, like the Italian city-states. So when Christopher Columbus comes to Ferdinand and and Isabella, Isabel, um, they they are not really taking that big of a gamble. What Christopher Columbus promises is a way to the Indies that doesn't rely on the Silk Road. And uh, it's the same guarantee of spices. It's the same guarantee of silk. It's the same trade guarantee but it frees Spain from um, from really being dependent on, on other city-states. Yeah. So what do they do? I mean, this guy comes out of, relatively out of nowhere with some idea that is like relatively poorly hatched. Um, it's been bounced around in Europe a little bit. Uh, but the Portuguese wouldn't fund them. Nobody else would fund them. The Spanish are like, what do we got to lose? So, so of course they fund them. Uh, what ends up happening, I think we all know the story of Christopher Columbus after he sails uh, west in this attempt to go east uh, because it sets our history in motion. But there is this entire history of the Western world, like not just the, the Western Hemisphere, our world, the United States, Canada, Mexico, like everything that happens in this hemisphere. There is this entire thing that happens here in, in the Western Hemisphere because the Italians controlled the the Silk Road, Spain then funds the voyage. Christopher Columbus ends up uh, somewhere completely different, and he's able to really stumble upon something. So there are no spices, at least not the spices that he had in mind. Uh, Eventually from the New World, we get tomatoes, we get peppers, we get potatoes. Uh, But primarily what they discovered was gold first. Uh, They also discovered humans who were not Christian, which meant a kind of thing for the slave trade. Uh, in the very beginning, the Native Americans that, that they did, stumbled upon, that they discovered, uh, they would force them to do labor. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know how you want to cut it, right? The Native Americans didn't have the immune systems um, that had been exposed to the things that the Europeans had been exposed to. And so massive die-off. Through some series of events, the Africans end up replacing um 
the, the, the indigenous people. And that, that's a kind of an interesting religious history that, that happens, but it's another, it's another day. Here we have the Atlantic slave trade and we have sugar. Sugar is super profitable. I mean, before that, it was, it was honey, right? Someone wanted to make a dessert, like, you know, 400 years ago. It was going to be honey-driven dessert because sugar was hard to come by. But once both slavery, the Atlantic slave trade, and sugar became a thing in the New World, now we begin to bring sugar into, um, you know, into the homes of the noble, into the homes of the elite, into the homes of, of the monarchs uh, in a way that wasn't, it simply wasn't possible before. Sugar drives this whole thing um, in, in a way that is unimaginable and it just explodes the, the type of wealth that Europe is able to have. Obviously, I think most people kind of know the, you know, the things, at least in this country. So there are other countries that, you know, they slavery kind of goes in a different direction. Uh, Brazil and Cuba and yada yo. Um, but most of us know the history of what happens here, right? And you can tie the history of what happens here to, um, you know, slavery and the Civil War and Reconstruction and Jim Crow and, uh, you know, unfair housing to something like Ferguson. Mm. Right. And so Ferguson doesn't seem like it has a tie to like Marco Polo. But these things are like at opposite, you know, it's the same spectrum, you know, without Marco Polo and without the silk trade and, you know, everything that happens between Spain and Portugal, Cape of Good Hope, we never like Ferguson doesn't happen. <laughs> Wow. Right. And so there's a context. I know that this is like ridiculous, right? <laughs> no, but, that's but they amazing. all need to happen in order for it to like actually like make sense. I was just wondering where you're going. I mean, it was a beautiful history lesson, but I was like, how is he going to get current? That's it. Ferguson to Marco Polo. Wow. All of these things are part of the wow. historic context. You know, yeah. and that's only, you know, that's what it's a small thread of it. Right. Um, but it's all relevant. So here's what I'm not asking. Yeah, well, I don't think you're going to get it. So go I'm ahead. What are you not asking? Here's what I'm not asking. I'm not asking everyone to bone up on history so much that, yeah. like, you know, you understand the. Um, but I, I do, I do think that people should understand that sure. they are in a context. The world that they walk out into when they walk out into the world is not one that's just formed as such. It's kind of mind blowing, honestly. It's, it's, it's not. It's yeah. not automatic. That the world that we live in came to be. Because of events, right? Yeah. However well you want to be acquainted of it, just know that there is a context. Yeah, and I think this is not, not well, this is important when people will point to per- particular times in history and, and point it towards something that's currently happening. Um, and people will say things like, oh, I'll hear comments or see comments as, yeah, but that's not what we're doing now. That's not what's happening now. Um, you know, something like, you know, slavery, right, right. Um, where people will say, yeah, but we, we don't hold slaves now. It's true. That is absolutely true. Right. But I think this is what's really important in that historical context is to see that we still are living out um, currently what has happened because of, of our history. Correct. And context. <laughs> right. <laughs> While we did it, we went, we moved it all the way back. It Well, Yeah. So um, so there's so much more to talk about, right? There's a lot to unpack, but I think I think we did a pretty adequate... Yeah, I, I feel like, uh, yes. Agreed. So hopefully if, if people have hung in there... That was beautiful, though. I love the way it was woven through. I mean, there were a lot of facts there, but I think it was necessary to even get us to the place where you could say... Right. And we'll, you know, we'll make yeah. it up in the show notes, anything that got to, you know. Okay. All right. 
For Heterodox Americana, uh, I'm Rafael Freeman. And I'm Angie Backus. And thanks for hanging in there with us. We'll see you. See ya.